This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, for today's show on maximizing our impact with one of Penn's most accomplished change agents. As always, our phones are open at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. And we'd love to have you join in the conversation. Bring your thoughts. Bring your questions. Just give us a call. That's one eight four four Wharton. So today, as we're talking about maximizing impact, it's with a really extraordinary guest. It's Dr. Risa Leviso Mori, who has spent her career strategically improving public health by working across sectors: healthcare, philanthropy, business, policy, and education, to harness the power of interdisciplinary partnerships and collaboration. Risa is the president emerita of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, where she held the post of CEO and president for nearly 15 years and was their first ever African-American CEO. She served on numerous federal advisory committees under the Clinton, Bush, and Obama presidencies and has spearheaded bold health initiatives such as strengthening the integration of health system and services and stemming childhood obesity. In 2016, she came home to Penn as the Robert Wood Johnson University Penn Integrates Knowledge. I know it's a mouthful. We call it PIC, Professor of Population Health and Health Equity at the University of Pennsylvania. What that means in English is she's actually got appointments in not one, not two, but three schools, Um, which means that this is one of, and those include the Perelman School of Medicine, the School of Nursing, and the Wharton School. This type of faculty appointment is new to Penn. It came with Amy Gutman in about 2005, and it really is one of, if not the most prestigious appointment offered by Penn, and not just because it means that whoever holds that role is capable of really serving as a full professor in multiple schools and disciplines, but it embodies the university's commitment to advance interdisciplinary knowledge to solve the world's biggest problems. And as a sign that we're not alone in our respect and admiration for her, this Harvard MD and Wharton MBA has been on the Forbes list of most important women in the world eight times and as one of modern healthcare's 100 most influential people in healthcare 11 times, which is all part of why I have to say I'm incredibly honored and thrilled to welcome her here to Women at Work today. So, Risa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Laura, for inviting me and having me here. It's a big, big honor for me. And it's a treat for us. So, Your career has been all about these big changes across these major sectors. But I have the chicken and egg question. What came first? Was it your interest in medicine, business, or was it that you wanted to take on big problems and that's how you did it? Well, honestly, Laura, it started with medicine. It started with wanting to be a doctor who had that special relationship with patients, you know, the kind that you felt on the other side where you just want to help people. And then along the way, I realized as a result of seeing some changes uh, in my environment in Seattle where I grew up, there was a, a recession when I was about 14 years old. And at the time, the economy in Seattle was really based on a couple of companies only. And they weren't Amazon or, uh, or Microsoft. Microsoft wasn't there yet. I'm giving my age away. 
And I, I realized that how healthy people were depended on factors much broader than that relationship between the doctor and the patient. And that really got me started on a path of trying to understand what some of those influences are and how we can change them to so, make people healthy. So it started for you as a teenager? When I look back at it, it really did. It really, that was when I began thinking about how to, how people got healthier and stayed healthy. Um, I'm going to ask a slightly selfish question, but it's also related to our audience. I have a 15-year-old daughter, Uh and she said recently to me that maybe a way that she could be a major activist for the community she cares about is to first become a famous celebrity because they obviously get to become big activists. Mm. And so we talked about there actually might be more direct roots there. (laughs) So in moving from your 14-year-old self to the person that got that MD and that MBA, how did you start to make real, make concrete for yourself, your understanding of how you could get trained so that you could have the impact that you wanted? Well, I I realized, uh, because I, you know, I had this real love of, of medicine and healthcare, that medicine was a way for me to open a lot of doors for myself. And I was uh, incredibly fortunate to have a mother who was a physician and who pretty much said, this is a way to be able to um, have access to a lot of different approaches. But first, you've got to become a really good doctor. That's the first step. That's the first step, is to become a really good doctor. And not just a doctor, but really good. <laughs> to become a, yes. And so that the first part of my career was really focused on understanding medicine and and uh, feeling really competent as a clinician. And then I kind of moved on from there. As you were going through that process, you were drive, your desire to learn more and do more. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you do with it? Did you just kind of park it on a shelf for a little while and, and you knew you'd come back to it? Well, there was always um, an activity that I was engaged in, whether it was working in a community when I was in medical school or uh, reading things uh, during residency. I, I won't say I was able to do many other activities during residency, it's but apparently rather all consuming. Yeah. <laughs> but then choosing a fellowship program actually here at the University of Pennsylvania that actively encouraged people to learn different disciplines, to get out of the usual uh, framework that medicine defined for you. So uh, it was was a continuous effort, I'd say. Part of what's so exciting about your background and your work is to see how community-focused you've been about that mm-hmm. public impact and also how important you see the role of business and how you leverage business. Could you talk about why you didn't go social policy or teaching, but you went business? Yeah. Well, when you think about how we get things done in this country and in any uh, country that relies on capitalism, business plays a tremendously powerful role in setting policy, in having access to influencers, in creating new products and services that can pull the country in one direction or another. And I think that realizing that and realizing that um, innovating in that space requires that you understand a little bit about it was what motivated me. And um, policy from from a governmental perspective almost always consults business. I mean, business 
complains that they don't consult enough, but they generally do consult. So I I don't know exactly how I came to that realization, <laughs> but at a fairly um, early uh, stage in my career, it, it made sense to me to try to bring them together. And um, and I always saw myself as kind of a bridge person anyway. So talk about that bridge a little bit as you moved into teaching and professional practice. Mm-hmm. Um, how were you building bridges then? Well, I... Or it, using bridges. Uh, in those early days, I was a faculty member here at the University of Pennsylvania. We had uh, as we do now, a health management program. And a colleague of mine, Alan Hillman, uh, realized as we were going through the program that there were very few opportunities for the students who were going to be consultants or executives in healthcare um, organizations. There were very few opportunities for them to actually hear the clinical perspective. And so Within my first year on the faculty, I tried to, uh, Alan and I actually developed a course called White Coats in Medicine, I think, or something <laughs> like that, that was intended to be that bridge. And um, and then my research and other scholarly activities tended to always be at the interface of business and clinical work or business and policy uh, over the years. As an idea and as a concept, it makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Um, yet when I start to think about what that's like in practice, mm-hmm. it seems like you're talking with people who there's a space of overlap, but they have different concerns, different cultures, different vocabularies. How did you learn to kind of be bilingual that way? And and I would say in different networks. And that's probably, as time has gone on, what the thing that I think is the the biggest barrier to uh, having impact and success in this area. Well, the first for me was to learn the language. And when I was applying to business school, uh, a um, a mentor said to me, in business school, you're, you're just going to learn a different language than you've had before, you, a different language than what you've learned in medicine, or as you think about public health or policy, it's, it's a different way of thinking about the world. And I think my comparative advantage in those early years was that I was bilingual. I could go back and forth. Even though I didn't have a lot of experience in business, when I was in an environment where I was trying to translate what the impact might be of, let's say, starting a house call program into the language that the the a home care agency could understand. I had the language to do it. So, and so I think that that, that it's not to be dim- diminished. I actually, I want to explore it because I think it's quite important and often elusive because mm-hmm. it makes sense that you had an MBA. So you understood the values, the terminology, the, the mental framework. Mm-hmm. There's also, a, it, that's not enough. That's just like I took five years of Spanish and I'm certainly not bilingual. There's something different about learning to communicate effectively. Right. Even with that terminology. And so could you talk a little bit about that project and what you not only what you how it worked, but what you learned from it? Yeah. Well, the you have to understand the outcomes that um, any organization or culture is interested in achieving and to be able to describe the project or the process in terms of those outcomes or that culture. 
And so it's more than the language. It's really being able to talk to another leader, a CEO of a of a business or a home care organization, and know that they're being judged and um, trying to achieve certain goals that may be different than the ones that you as a clinician uh, were trained and are expected to achieve. And so in those early days, you rarely heard clinicians talking about a return on investment. It just wasn't in our lexicon. And and probably also not with on the list of concerns. And not clearly. Exactly right. And so to be able to explain and formulate the goals of the program to include the clinical aspects, but also what the return on investment is going to be, made it possible to talk to the leaders in business. And now you wouldn't find um, a healthcare organization that's going to define its mission and its um, value proposition that would not include patient values in the way that clinicians would define them. So I think that there was over a five or six year period of time, a kind of bridging of uh, the understanding of the two sets of goals um, and some of the cultural issues in in those two domains. There is something that you said that um, feels like an aha moment for me. So I want to explore it a little bit. Mm -hmm. You talked about, um, because I'm I'm accustomed to the idea that when we go into a collaborative project, we all have different agendas, Yeah, which takes the place of what we want to accomplish. But you said what we're judged by. Mm -hmm. And that seems potent in a way that I haven't heard articulated as well. So could you talk about how you came to realize that and how we can go into rooms with colleagues, go into joint projects and unearth that in a way that we can understand it and help solve towards it? Yeah. Well, it really goes back to a a comment that you made. Uh, As a doctor or as a nurse, when we were in the era that we were talking about, you would not... it would be an anathema for you to express concern about what something costs or what the return on investment was. And yet we know that in the business world, how what your return on investment is going to be how you're judged. Right. Um, on the clinical side, what your clinical outcome is. And so I think that just spending time in both of those environments and knowing that as humans, we are always trying to achieve goals, um, at least the kind of people that I was hanging out with. <laughs> Certainly. But that also in a very human way to become empathetic for the pressures mm-hmm. that your collaborators are facing. Sure. By the way, I, this is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM 111, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I am talking with Dr. Risa Leviso-Mori. She's a PIC professor, PIK professor. Um, at the University of uh, Pennsylvania here. She's a professor of population health and health equity and the former CEO of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. If you want to join in the conversation, you have questions for Risa, give us a call. We'd really love to hear from you at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. So one of the other um, things that you mentioned before that I want to tap into is you talked about when you were being mentored. Mm-hmm. Who were your most significant mentors? Well, my first and I would say most impactful mentor was my mother, who was a pediatrician, um, the first African-American pediatrician in Seattle. And uh, she taught me just 
enormous amounts about um, what it's like to be a leader, what it's like to be a woman leader, um, and, you know, expectations that people will have of of me and that you can do that and have a real life, have a family. <laughs> and um, so that was very that she was a, a very important mentor for me that unfortunately I lost at an early age. Uh, and then, I, you know, many of the other mentors I had were actually men who, uh, for whatever reason, um, had ideas about how to help uh, a variety of people, not just uh, the traditional leader, but uh, women and, in my case, African-American women. So uh, one of my mentors here at, at Penn, too, actually, Sam Martin, who ran the Clinical Scholars Program and was a professor in the, in the Wharton School, uh, John Eisenberg, who uh, was an early... Uh, health services researcher who defined a new approach to understanding how to deliver better care. Uh, and then once I got to, to government, it was Lou Sullivan, who was uh, the secretary of HHS. And I think one of the things that all of these people um, had in common was that they were bridge people. They were people that were um, moving across either disciplines or academia and government. They they had a foot in two different camps. One of the things that I think is important for particularly women to understand is you're always going to need mentors, mm -hmm. um, no matter what level you get to. And uh, as a, and uh, the higher up you go, the harder it is to find mentors. Um, and sometimes you don't refer to them so much as a mentor, as uh, a colleague or uh, a peer coach in some ways. And uh, when I was at the um, at Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, I worked closely with Indra Nui. And uh, we, I think, tried uh, to influence each other's worlds in ways that were uh, creative and positive. So um, you were both gracious and I think a little modest in how you described um, these men who were mentoring you. That they were open to different kinds of people as if that was the goal, aside from how brilliant and talented and how much you ha you are and how much you had to contribute well, one thing i you're very you're very kind to say that, but i I've now done more mentoring than I've been mentored, and I think that one of the things about the relationship is that it's a reciprocal relationship, and it's one where there's got to be a certain amount of chemistry and commitment. Yes. And so I always tell people, you you are going to get from the relationship what you put into it. And uh, I think one of the things I probably was pretty uh, dogged about in those early years was was leaning into it, showing that I, this was an important relationship to me. And I, I wasn't just sitting back. I was... So really... was it your mom who helped you see that mentorship was important and you should seek it out and and learn from it? No, that came that came later. Uh, you know, she was of an era where there weren't a lot of mentors for, uh, professional mentors for mm -hmm. women, particularly African-American women. So no, it wasn't until I got to medical school and I saw that that was a norm 
uh, that I hadn't experienced yet that I started seeking that out. Because I'm almost embarrassed to admit that early in my career, there were women who were trying to mentor me and I didn't understand. Yeah. And I didn't know. And and it's like I owe them a Barbara, Jan, I owe you a big apology. You were both wonderful. (laughs) But that they, um, I didn't understand the nature of that relationship, how to lean into it, and also how to honor it. Yes. So when you think now and you look back at how you learned to be mentored, Mm -hmm. what advice would you give to young people or any of us at any stage um, so that we can make the most of those opportunities? Well, first of all, as you said, honor it. Respect respect the fact that this is... um, over and above what anyone needs to do. Um, and make sure that you use their time very wisely. Uh, don't take it for granted. Secondly, understand that uh, part of being mentored is being willing to be in a re- relationship where you're going to be criticized. And you want that because it's coming from someone who's doing it um, out of a, a, a sense of furthering your own career. So understand it's not always going to be fun to be mentored. <laughs> right. Sometimes it's going to feel a little bit like you're in therapy or, or in some situation <laughs> yes. that is difficult. And, um, you know, uh, don't make that more difficult for the mentor than it needs to be because it's already difficult to criticize people. And did you go and say, would you be my mentor? Or is it that you just you found yourself in these relationships and then you realized you were being mentored? The latter. The latter. It it wasn't until later that I had a way of framing it for people that were seeking me out as a mentor. But it was uh, it was more organic for me at that time. What about this stage of your life? Well, uh, I'm much more conscious of it now. I mean, I certainly coming back to the university after being in a very different role for 15 years, I made a point of of talking to people that I saw as as successful professors and particularly successful professors across disciplines to uh, to find out what what I might do and and how to avoid a few uh, a few traps. It's interesting you say that because when we talked with Mary Barra, one of the things she talked about was that she's still learning, but it's about learning from her peers yeah. who have encountered these experiences in a different way or before she did. Yes. And a testimony that we we don't want to stop learning. You can't. And that's too much fun. <laughs> it's true. And but that within our networks, there are a lot of people for us to learn from, not just leverage. Exactly. Exactly. And that uh, if I'll go back for a moment to the the um, non-overlapping networks for people who are in these roles of of trying to influence multiple s- spheres. Um, uh, so often, I've had people, particularly women, come to me and say, "You know, I'm I've had a successful business career, and now I want to move into the nonprofit world." And I look through my contacts, and I realize I don't know anyone in the nonprofit world who can help me get there. And so, one of the things I have really tried to advise people to do and cultivate myself are networks that really cross disciplines, cross sectors, um, cross political parties. Because when you're trying to accomplish a difficult task, you almost always have to bring in allies from uh, from different walks of life. So when you look back at when you started to cultivate those networks, I'm imagining some happened naturally because mm-hmm. you were 
on your medical path and you were teaching, you're in a university, and you're also, you got your MBA, so there's business. So that's, that's some natural exposure. How much of it was conscious on your part or how much of it was just you were collecting diverse and interesting people? It it was uh, conscious once I started trying to put goals on uh, some of those activities. And then it became, it w- then it was no longer collecting interesting people, but it was, as you said, when you're trying to put together um, a collaboration, you need to be very mindful of who has to be in the room if this is going to be successful. And often there was an empty seat that represented someone from government or someone who could was a representative of the community or uh, a business uh had the business expertise to do the particular task. So that's that's how I began to really be more mindful of uh, of what I was doing. So when we were talking before about that process of learning, how are others judged? What are their ambitions? Bringing a little empathy to it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's easy to put myself in your shoes and imagine what it's like to do that crossing business and medicine. How did you learn to do that crossing political parties? Well, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation is very clear that we are a nonpartisan organization because if you're going to be a strategic philanthropy and work on big issues over a decade, you're necessarily going to uh, have different political parties uh, in uh, in the uh, majority. So uh, it was really by uh, trial by fire, uh, <laughs> understanding that our process has become much more partisan. And if you're going to uh, be able to work across the aisle, you really have to actively do it. There are far fewer people now in really all levels of government where you can, where they're the bridge people, the moderates. Mm -hmm. And so you really do have to cultivate a relationship with someone who you know will work on a, one particular issue, they may not work on other issues with you. Hopefully they're not, uh, have values that are consistent overall with where you want to go. So is it finding the point of intersection, even if it's around that one issue? It generally is around a, a fairly narrow time. or fairly, fairly narrow band of issues these days. I mean, in the past it was different, but these days that's the nature of the the way you have to work. And hard to get there, but at least when you get there, there's that shared thing that you can focus on together. And you have to cultivate that. One of the things I'm curious about is your journey into the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Um, You were doing dynamic, influential work here at Penn and um, had with you all of this work and training you had in both medicine and business and looking at public health. Um, Why go the route of philanthropy? as opposed to going to work for a company? Well, I spent about a year and a half uh, working on health care reform under the Clinton administration. And for for your listeners who are a little older, they'll remember how that that played out. And for the younger ones, let me just tell you, it didn't work. (laughs) And I, and when... It didn't work. People said to me, you know, this issue, expanding health care coverage for people who don't have health insurance, is going to be dead for the next 10 years. We just, it's it's not going to be politically uh, viable as an issue. It wasn't feasible. It just 
it's nu- it's radioactive. And so um, it, as part of that process of working on on uh, the the issue, I became aware of how philanthropy, strategic philanthropy, meaning philanthropy that uh, looks at a problem, tries to identify approaches to that, and then fund people and projects that move in that direction. So it's not being a charitable banker. It's not saying just give me your good ideas, but really having a, a direction and a purpose for the the funding. I was able to see how these kinds of philanthropies were able to have a real impact on the thought process, the kind of um, uh, data that could be brought to a problem. And I thought, well, this is this is an interesting avenue to having impact. And so I and I will be honest, I was feeling a little restless. Uh, did I want to move into business into a, a for profit company? Did I want to? take on more administrative responsibilities within academia. But ultimately, the ability to influence more broadly uh, and over a longer period of time uh, that that I saw as, as a possibility within philanthropy is what drove me there. I mean, you think about business, uh, the way we look at it these days, and we're quarter to quarter. I mean, sometimes it's, you've got a, uh, a two- or three-year plan, but you're still quarter to quarter in how you're judged um, and Which also then drives short-term decision-making instead of long-term decision-making. You you do. And as I said earlier, I, I absolutely see how the two have to work together. But sometimes you need to know that there's a, a long arc that is going to stick with an issue, even if others have to move away from it for a while, because you've got to have that consistency. So that's what drove me to uh, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, plus the people there are fabulous and it's it's a large foundation so there's enough resources to make things happen. Right. And to clarify that as the CEO and president of the foundation, were you you weren't simultaneously fundraising, you were managing an endowment, correct? I had the the great uh uh, advantage of not having to fundraise for every project that we did. We were endowed in 1972 with a billion dollars of Johnson and Johnson stock and over the Ensuing forty plus years, we made uh, about ten and a half billion dollars in investments. Notice I didn't say gifts because we do see them as investments. And when I left the foundation, it had just hit the eleven billion dollar. That's extraordinary. Uh, so it's been a, a real success in terms of managing a successful endowment. But it also speaks to several things. One is why these foundations can be so impactful, because it's about leveraging these significant resources. Exactly. And you're right to use the word leverage, because any program or any uh, problem that a foundation is taking on, the resources that we can put into it are, are minuscule compared to the size of the problem. You think about foundations that are addressing climate uh, change, mm-hmm. for example, or expanding coverage for... Right, like I think about the Rockefeller Foundation, yeah. now that Dr. Roden... Yeah, it's not... I think that's somewhere between 2 and $4 billion. And what is the magnitude of the problem when we talk about climate? So you're you're always leveraging and you're always using your influence more than you're using your actual dollars. That's a really powerful concept. Could you talk more about that and how you make that real when you're at that position that I've got some money, but what I want is big influence? Yeah. Well, you always have to have a a multi-pronged strategy for that. Influence is 
dependent on the people. So uh, understanding who can be influential and how you can bring them into the, the, the orbit, if you will. And often the most powerful influencers on, a, on an issue are not ones that the foundation is funding, but people that want to be associated with the foundation because of the prestige, because of the quality of the data, and frankly, the quality of the other players that they can bring together. So people using your influence to get the right people in the room and and help them uh, leverage what they want to do with the, the ultimate, the goal that you share. So that's one. Second is information. Um, foundations have the ability to develop new information and to uh, synthesize existing information in a way that gets it in the hands of the people who need it at the right time. So is that about data collection and reporting and research? It's about all three. And it's also about strategic communication and having that information packaged in a way with stories and with uh channels of influence that makes the information available to the people who are making decisions when they need it. So it's it's all of those things. And then, uh, very important, it's about innovation. The foundations exist to be able to innovate in ways that government can't because it has to take things to scale and it has to be accountable in ways that foundations don't. That's not to say foundations waste money. It's to say we we exist to take risk and to innovate. And also your timeline for proving yourself and being judged is different and the people who judge you exactly. is very different. Exactly. It's not depending on what happens at the polls next November. Or what happens with your quarterly earnings. Right. So and it's a kind of luxury that you have, but it also means you have to manage those things yourselves. We do. and And it also means that you can look for places to innovate that aren't necessarily going to have an immediate return on investment. The way if you're in business, you a lot of innovation, you could argue that much innovation that we do in this country comes from business, but they have a different purpose and uh, they take risks. They have many failures, but it's always in service of the uh, company's bottom line. And so our innovation is a little different. Could you give me an example of one in particular that happened under your watch Hmm. that you're particularly proud of? Well, when I first got to the foundation, um, we started a portfolio called the Pioneer Portfolio, which was intended really to fund things at a fairly small level, but uh, also things that were a little um, risky and, and not aligned with some of our other work. And I remember someone coming to me and talking to me about um, games for health and developing games to improve health. And I I said, games, what are you talking about? I mean, I I didn't play games. (laughs) Uh, But then I started noticing what uh, that people on airplanes and everywhere were using games. And it wasn't just adolescent boys. It was across the I know. I walked down the aisle on the train and there are adults my age and older playing games on their phones. So this became um, an area that we helped to seed as a, a, a kind of use for games that could 
change how people thought about learning about their diabetes or or just uh, designing new environments for health. And it was it was one of the first times that I got totally out of my comfort zone. And uh, I think now we see gaming and health as uh, a natural thing. So it, when I think about kind of the idea supply chain, how you move from recognizing that you want to um, disseminate information or change behavior, mm-hmm. and the games are a mechanism for that, where does your partnership with business come in? Often it is in uh, identifying areas where business is already doing some work, but they they haven't overlapped with um, what could be a new market or a new niche for them. Um, that's one area where you say, okay, you're you're in the gaming business. Maybe we should talk about some of the things that you could do differently to attract people who are interested in health. That's one. Um, but more likely, it is in just um, the the very specific project and getting a, a business leader to talk about it, promote it in a way that they they hadn't before. Uh, so an example of that, not necessarily related to games, is is um, this whole notion of a culture of health and what it means to try to build a culture where we care about health and we make products and policies and decisions that actually help people be healthier. Um, There are any number of uh, businesses that are doing that, whether they're trying to make healthier food products or they're trying to understand how to get people to be more physically active because that's going to help them in their business model. But talking about it in a, a framework that describes it as actually changing our culture. As a social good. As a social good. Um, and also as a business good is a way of collaborating with business. By the way, this is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM 111. And I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I'm talking with Dr. Risa Laviso-Mori. She's the PIK University Professor of Population Health and Health Equity here at Penn and the former CEO of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. If you have a question about what we're discussing, please give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. Or if you're like the caller who just came in and you just want to send a message through Patty, please do. Once again, that's 1-844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. And Risa, the message from the caller was actually that um, he said you are an amazing woman, love the program, and that you're really a role model. So that was a little love from one of yes, our listeners. So thank you for calling thank in. Thank you, listener. <laughs> so this issue of how you partner with business, I think, is really fascinating. Um, when is it helping them wake up to a need mm-hmm. and align what they could, where they could create market or find market mm-hmm. along with create social good? Right. Um, given your sensitivity to what businesses need to do in order to be successful, What's the process like of, it's one thing, I can talk about it, I can you know, say it in three or four sentences, but making that real sounds a lot more complicated. Well, I think a good example um, that's really getting traction now is what's happening with Just Capital. You know, this is a, a fund now that uh, Paul Tudor has started, 
Uh, it's one that it's trying to identify those companies across sectors, across businesses that um, are paying attention to their profits and to the things that people increasingly care about and put in the category of environment, social, and governance. What kind of jobs are they creating? How are, what is their carbon footprint? Um, what kind of um, other uh, benefits are they providing to their workers and their communities? And what he's really on um, a journey to prove is that the returns for these companies are actually better than the returns for companies that are more narrowly focused just on the bottom line. Isn't it amazing and exciting? Don't it, you want to see? Yes, I told you this was always possible. It, it it absolutely is what will make business a even stronger player in creating the kind of uh, societies that we want. Because it becomes essential in a different way. Yes. Um, as you're talking about this, part of what I'm seeing are kind of layers of networks mm-hmm. that you talked earlier about. You know, we develop a personal network, which helps us bring the right people in the room. But it's also about networks of whole industries, of whole businesses, of business leaders, of sections of government. Mm-hmm. As you moved into increasing responsibility to operate in a way that's going to have influence, um, it's, I don't know, is it another chicken and egg question? What comes first, the relationship with the person in the sector or ways of reaching out to the sector? You know, I think it's it's both and. And I'll give you an example from uh, our work in trying to promote a healthy weight among kids or another way of saying it, reduce the levels of childhood obesity, which is a, an area that the foundation took on early on. And we started out saying, geez, we've got, to, how do we get to kids and, and help them be healthier? Well, you go to schools where kids spend their time. They're in schools most of the time. And that was an easy partnership for a philanthropy to have, especially our philanthropy. We had funded school clinics and we were used to working with school nurses about healthy behaviors and things like that. A little more challenging to uh, actually ask a school district to change what it's doing because they are all constrained and there's lots of politics there and you have to do it community by community. So that's where the people came in is knowing all right, where are their uh, superintendents or school districts that are really uh, leading the way and can help bring others on because they've already started doing it. They're not doing it because the foundation has asked them to do it. They're leading already. So there's that level. And then as we got into it a little more, we realized, geez, when kids go home, they need a place where they can be active and they need encouragement to be physically active. Um, And that gets you into relationships with city governments and community organizations. Um, And there, again, it tended to be um, looking for examples around the country where they were leading and trying to bring those people in. It sounds like this was important, not just for you, but probably for everybody on your team that, you know, throughout the organization, you needed people to be connected to other people. Oh, absolutely. As, as As a leader, how do you encourage and facilitate that? Well, we... We made it an active part of uh, what we encouraged people to do and how we rewarded them. 
And we talked about it. We talked about uh, trying to achieve a goal and asking ourselves, if we want to get there, who do we need to have a relationship with? Which organizations are going to be really critical to achieving that goal? And do we have a, a relationship with them? If not, how can we begin to cultivate it, get them to trust us and learn how we can help them? Uh, and, you know, with regard to, to business, in particular with uh, childhood obesity, we it became very clear that unless you can start to have an influence on the foods that kids eat every day, um, it's going to be very difficult to change the body mass index of of a population. And so we we started talking about that, and it, within uh, a year or two, there were leaders within the food industry that were saying, "Hey, we're we want to be a part of that too." It's really interesting to hear you talk about building relationships in this regard, because when we often, especially in a university setting, you think about philanthropy. The idea is building relationships with the individuals from whom you are fundraising. Mm-hmm. Or building the relationship with the organization with who, from whom you'd like to receive funding. Right, right. But this is kind of engineered that same idea, but in reverse. And yeah, the we relation, do it too. Yeah. the organizational relationships really matter, and that it's interesting when you think about um, new businesses, mm-hmm. new social impact initiatives, mm-hmm. how important that institutional networking is. And I love that you pointed out you made it a goal. You measured people on it. We did, yeah. And we, and you know, not every relationship that we thought was important to cultivate were we successful in cultivating. But it it wasn't a happenstance. Uh, we thought very intentionally about um, the kind of relationships we needed to cultivate. Because as I said earlier, uh, our work is about influence, and uh, so we weren't going to. And within business. It's not going to be a funding relationship because no. they don't look to us for funding. But it sounds like it's a doing relationship, exactly. an idea relationship. Exactly. Um, one of the things that's necessary for building these kinds of relationships, never mind operating at the level of a CEO, is a comfort with that kind of dialogue and relationship building. Mm. Did you always have that or was that something that you learned through your career? Did you... Oh, heavens no. <laughs> uh, I think that one of the things that... Um, training in different environments does is it teaches you how to be comfortable or almost comfortable in different um, different environments. So I think the fact that I worked in in government at the federal level and um, in the White House that I worked I was went to business school and very quickly found myself working with business leaders. I, I had um, sort of a comfort level, but it was something I I always had to work on. And um, anyone, I think anyone who tells you that that's not the case, I would doubt it. <laughs> it's why I hope you have a mind, but I felt free to ask because yeah. I think it is a thing that you, even the most social people I know, you still have to learn it. You do. And um, I can recount like moments where I was just, you know, my missteps, when I was embarrassed, when I felt awkward. Hopefully some of it goes away with time. Sure. And, you know, if you think about when you are, when if you are... Uh, in communications and all of a sudden you're thrown in with um, statisticians, you've got to work hard to be comfortable, right? And so I think that part of being a CEO and representing your organization is being able to um, learn how to do that. One of the other things you had to have learned along the way, because 
um, you have two children, grown children, right? I do. So you moved between a lot of worlds, including home and work. Yes. Um, was there anything approaching work-life integration for you? I, I believe actually very strongly in um, parents, to a certain degree, bringing their kids into their work environment. And uh, when I was uh, a, a youngster, by necessity, my mother often had to have us join her at the office because there wasn't anybody to take care of us and she had to go see a patient. And when um, when I was, uh, when my kids were younger, I had a routine of at least once or twice, I took them on a trip with me where it was just the one child and we, they went to the meetings, we had fun, but they also got to see me in my environment and it was uh, it was an opportunity for us to talk about other things besides their homework and, you know, cleaning their room and, and things like that. And then with my daughter, who was a, a cartoonist as a, as a youngster, she loved to just draw cartoons, I would always end one of my lectures with a cartoon by her. And so I would, you know, she was eight to ten years old, I'd say, so I'm talking about dehydration with can you draw me a cartoon to end the end the talk? And that became our our little connection that sort of bridged home and 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 my work. It's marvelous because it seems like it does multiple things. It's a way to connect with your kids. It's a way to open a window into the world that they're not usually part of, so they understand you better. Yeah. But probably also inspires them to see a bit of the work world and what's possible out there. And you also get to see what you do through their eyes. And seeing uh, any world through kids' eyes is often uh, an important thing for us adults to do. Um, since we may have a few of those kids' ears listening out there, and we just have a little bit of time left, um, what advice do you have for the people with big ideas who want to make big change happen in the world? Mm. Oh, that's a... People like my daughter, yeah. who wants to go make it a better world than she walked into. Yeah. Um, where should they start? Well, I think... I know it's a huge question. Start but. first with um, your passion, with what you really want to change and, and understanding it deeply. I think there's no substitute for really having deep knowledge and uh, a, a comprehensive approach to an issue. Uh, I think secondly, um, trying to look at it from a totally different vantage point than you originally thought you would take on. Um, so that you're literally putting yourself in the shoes of some other perspective, whether, uh, you know, if you think that you're going to approach something as I did from the health perspective, get out of that and look at it from the business perspective or something along those lines. And then I think, uh, Choosing some role models and mentors um, at an early age is invaluable. And I think this is something that um, we, this part of the reason we're having the conversation. And then uh, last, um, uh, set some goals. Said, Always set goals. It's marvelous advice. And once again, it's that mixture of wisdom and empathy that it sounds like you, and ambition to make a difference that you bring to everything you do. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.